Chrissy, you're gonna go out with Jake and Jordan and Quinlan? No. All right. Well, we come to the end of the book of Daniel. This is the 14th sermon over these 12 chapters, which means we've gone back over three months now uh, looking at this small book. I don't know about you, but I have enjoyed it. Uh, I have learned a lot. And... uh, I never go to God's Word, never, without learning. Uh, I was just sharing with Brian ahead of the service that that any time, any time I say anything in one of my messages that just doesn't set right or rings a bell or you feel like that's not what you've been taught and you wonder, by all means, give me a call. Come by the office. Sit down. Let's study it together. Because I promise you, I don't know everything. I know that I'm human. And I know that if I set myself up as the authority, then that's when God is going to especially make sure that... I get struck back down to be humble. I know when I get to heaven. And notice that I begin by saying when I get to heaven. I know that when I get to heaven, one of the Gospel writers, one of the Old Testament writers, possibly Paul, is going to say, Ah, Chauncey, let's go for a walk. And there will be a loving arm that will go around my shoulders and he'll say, do you know when you told the people that I said this and that's what I meant? Well, that's not what I meant. But notice I said when I get to heaven. Because I don't believe that it has anything to do with what we believe to be the essentials of salvation. There's a whole lot that's in the Bible that does not specifically point to the essentials of salvation. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the appointed King, the Son of God, and that He died. He was born of a virgin. Let me go all the way back there because you know there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who do not accept the virgin birth of Jesus. That He was born of a virgin that he died, that he was buried in a tomb, that he was in fact resurrected from the dead. Not a spiritual resurrection, not a resurrection of faith, but he was physically resurrected to the point that he could say to Thomas, here's my side, here's my hands, go ahead and touch. He could affirm that resurrected state with his disciples by saying, well give me something to eat. Not once, but a couple times. Out by the sea. There in the, in the room. 
Those are the essentials. And the essentials continue by the fact that I have to not only know that information, I have to believe it and trust it loyally, willing to give my life, but also willing to confess to be baptized with Christ. Romans 6, 1 to 7, 13, there is no question of the importance of baptism as the beginning of our life in Christ. There's, in fact, to the point that I could even get a THM thesis approved at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary maintaining the importance of baptism as an initial salvific event. Uh, it's there. The evidence is there. We have to submit in baptism. We have to have a confession of faith publicly. And then it doesn't stop. There are a lot of people who go into the waters of baptism, dry sinners, who come out wet sinners. There has to be a transformation of life. And we have to live differently. If people don't look at me and say, there's something about you that's different. And not just the fact that I'm weird. If there isn't something about the way that I live that doesn't draw their attention, then I'm not living the way I need to be living. As Daniel 12 begins, we hear that the words of the messenger, probably once again the angel Gabriel, as we already saw, words which began back in chapter 10 verse 11, have now come to an end. And Daniel is left standing alone by the Tigris River. But not quite alone. His vision was not quite finished. And he had some unanswered questions. By now, not only is Daniel aware, but you and I should also be aware that the Christian life is filled with tension. We constantly feel the pull in different directions. It's a life in which conflict and persecution are inevitable. Listen once again to the words of Paul that he wrote to Timothy, that young protege, shortly before he was going to be executed. What would be the last words you would want to share with somebody knowing that you're just about ready to be taken outside of Rome on the ignition way and be beheaded. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct. Notice, observed, not just heard. You've observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering, the things that happened to me in Antioch. This is not just a faith that comes to your head that you believe propositionally. I can believe in my head that 2 plus 2 is 4. But it's totally different when I go to the bank and I'm making a deposit and I'm wanting to make sure that my two plus the two they have me recorded adds up as four in my account. 
The things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you hear that? All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you're not being persecuted in one way or another, the only logical conclusion would be that you're not living the godly life that you need to be living. There's something else that I believe Daniel knew and we should also know. It's that there is going to be an end to the world as we know it. Now that's not something that's anti-science. Scientists will admit that the world is slowing down. In fact, in my lifetime, I remember distinctly a couple times where they said they had to adjust that supposedly perfect clock that is out west somewhere. And the reason they gave was because the world is slowing down. And they have a rate for which it is slowing down. And with any rate of deceleration, there is a corollary rate of acceleration. And you can go and extrapolate back to the point that less than the number of years that they try to claim there was life on this planet, this planet would have been spinning so fast that nothing would have stood, stayed on it. Just by reversing the rate of deceleration into a rate of acceleration. But anyway, that's neither here nor there this morning. I'll, I'll go off on that tangent and go forever. Uh, the end of the world, though, will not be the result of calculations based on false understandings of God's Word. Believe me, there have been many false prophets regarding the return of the Lord. And I believe they are false prophets because they give people false hope. And what are we supposed to do with false prophets? We're to disregard them, not listen to anything else they say, not buy the next book that they put out. You realize, don't you, that as early as 165 A.D., people believed that the world was going to end in their lifetime. That was the year that a church father named Justin Martyr, that's not his last name, by the way, He's called Justin Martyr because he lost his life because of his belief. He was martyred. Justin Martyr, on his understanding of Daniel 7.25 and 12.7, predicted, He whom Daniel foretells would have dominion for a time and times and a half is even already at the door about to speak blasphemous and daring things against the Most High. Others include Cyprian of Carthage, 250 A.D., 
For you ought to know and to believe and hold it to certain that the day of affliction has begun to hand over our heads and the end of the world and the time of Antichrist to draw near so that we must all stand prepared for the battle. 250 A.D. A knowledgeable church scholar. Cyril, Cyril of Jerusalem, 350 A.D. But this aforesaid Antichrist is to come when the times of the Roman Empire shall have been fulfilled and the end of the world is now drawing near. Roger Bacon, 13th century. All wise men believe that we are not far removed from the times of the Antichrist. Thomas Adams. Bring it home, the United States. 1633, the last month of the great year of the world has come upon us. We are in deep December. Jonathan Edwards, the great American revivalist preacher, 1757, he said, These things duly considered, I imagine, afford us ground to suppose not only that the effect of the sixth vial, he's talking about the sixth vial of Revelation, is already begun, but that some progress is already made in it, and that this vial is now running apace, and when it's finished, there is all reason to suppose that the destruction of the Antichrist will very speedily follow. William Miller, the Millerites. March 21st of 1843, March 21st of 1844, Christ will come and bring all His saints with Him. Michael Drosnan, in his book, The Bible Code 2, contemporary book, predicts that the Bible Code clearly states the danger in modern terms, atomic holocaust and world war, are both encoded in the Bible and both are encoded in the same year, 2006. Well, guess what? When it didn't happen in 2006, in October of 2010, he published Bible Code 3. And people bought it and believed it. Harold Camping, July of 1921 to December of 2013, an American Christian radio broadcaster. He first predicted that Judgment Day would occur on September the 6th, 1994. I don't know about you, but I hope that's not the case. Well, I know it's not the case because if I wasn't in heaven, I'd be somewhere else. Okay? When that date didn't come, he revised it to September the 29th and then revised it again to October the 2nd. In 2005, Camp Camping predicted the second coming of Christ to be May the 21st of 2011 whereupon the saved world would be taken up to heaven in the rapture. So that means you and I are left behind. And that there would be five months of fire, brimstone, and plagues on earth with millions of people dying each day, culminating on October the 21st of 2011. Now, I don't know if you know, but what actually happened in 2011 was that he was forced to retire from active broadcasting because he suffered a severe and debilitating stroke. Here's the truth. We don't know when 
We don't know when. In Revelation, by the way of the sixth seal, the bowl of wrath, the sixth trumpet blast, we have been given a very brief glimpse in symbolic and apocalyptic language as to how, but not when. What we do know from both experience and Scripture is that we all will die. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that the judgment to cross, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. You see, when He returns, when He returns, it's going to be judgment day. Not a rapture as in Lehay and Jenkins' Left Behind series. And just as our lives will come to an end, so also the book of Daniel comes to an end. And in a way that's both puzzling, which should not come as a surprise after all that we've read. And strangely, it's also comforting and reassuring. Chapter 12 of Daniel. At that time, what time? We can't jump ahead 2,000 plus years and say, well, he's talking about the future because he doesn't use future terms. At that time, it's the time of the distress predicted in Jeremiah 30. It's the time when Herod is pre pre pitching his tent because the chapter breaks weren't there in the original documents. It's what immediately precedes it in chapter 12. Or 11, I mean. At that time, the conflict of Herod, killing of the babies, the conflict leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charged with your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. In other words, there are going to be some who survive. Everyone whose name shall be written in the book, and as I shared with you last week, the book of the living, Psalm 69. Not the book in Revelation that we're going to be judged out of in terms of the books in the book, but the book of the living. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Yes, some of those who die in all of that will not come back until the final judgment. But someday they will. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, over I looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? What wonders? The wonders that he's been describing. 
And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and he left his left hand toward the heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be a time, times, and a half time. And I shared with you that that's exactly how long Antiochus Epiphanes' reign of terror took place in Judah. Three and a half years. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the reading of God's Word. Before we start digging in, let me read that last verse once more. But go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Surely, surely we can find some comfort in the fact that Daniel himself says, I heard, but I did not understand. I would think that that should also relieve those who are obsessive about calculating the dates and the connections of Daniel's visions, some of them with mathematical precision, in terms of contemporary history or a timetable for the so-called end of the world, the end of times. When one of the two men in the final vision asks the question, how long? And when Daniel himself asks, what shall be the outcome of these things? The answers seem to be deliberately mysterious. But most agree that they either refer back to the carnage imposed by Antiochus Epiphanes, they point forward to the tribulation during the Roman siege of Jerusalem that ended in 70 AD, 66 to 70 AD, or even to both. And almost any attempt to work out an exact meaning, which I read too many this week. I, I just I got heartbroken reading guys that I know, guys that I have trusted, guys that I have had faith in and believed in their understanding who started pointing to the end of times, the end of the world. But they all had glitches that they would quickly pass over. That being said, I think we can agree that they do point to a coming suffering and desolation of God's people. And that happened. The nation of Israel and the people of Jerusalem 
were so slaughtered that the streets literally flowed with blood. But people listened to Jesus. Because in Matthew, when Jesus is talking about the great walls and bricks or stones of the temple coming down, he was talking about and giving signs of the destruction of Jerusalem. And so do you know how many Christians we know of that lost their lives in the destruction of Jerusalem? Not one. They left. They got out of Jerusalem before Titus and his armies came in and destroyed it. Because they heeded the words of Jesus in Matthew. Words that, again, some of my friends have pointed to events in the future. There are three things, though, that I think we can take away from this, and and I'm going to move quickly. The first is I find comfort in the fact that I see in this chapter the fact that we have guardian angels to help us. Daniel 12, 1 speaks of Michael. My friend Victor Knowles has written a book called Angels and Demons, Ancients of God and Satan, a biblical study. And he points out how Michael plays a very important role in Scripture with at least five major events. Two of those are the 21-day battle of Daniel 10 and this reference in Daniel 12 of Michael's protecting God's people. And so in answer to the question, do angels still exist today? Are angels still with us? Victor has written, there's not a shred of biblical evidence that points to their sudden withdrawal from human affairs. And he goes on to point out that Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are sent to be ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. And how many of you are familiar with Hebrews 13.2? Hebrews 13.2 indicates that some of us, some of God's people, have actually entertained angels without being aware of it. Go read it. I've had accounts, a tornado, tornado in Joplin, Missouri, things that aren't explainable. A little girl who shut herself in a closet, whose mom was at work, the closet was the only part of the house not destroyed. She told her mom and those who found her, That guy in white, he said I'd be okay. That he'd take care of me. Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 6. As he admonishes us, put on the whole armor of God. He points out that we do so in order to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And he continues by saying, For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Friends, we are in the midst of a spiritual battle and I don't know about you, but I'm glad that Michael and whoever else he wants to bring with him are there as guardian angels to help protect me and my family. If only from my own stupid blunders. Secondly, I think this chapter points out that we have an inheritance that's assured in heaven. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 12 to 13 of chapter 12. It's a promise of everlasting life. It's a promise for those who have already died and sleep in the dust of the earth that there will be something beyond death. And the reward that comes at the end of the days. Daniel is told twice in this final chapter, go your way. In other words, Daniel, quit wasting your life worried about and calculating the ends. You need to keep on living. And by the way, when your living's done, the phrase, and rest, you shall rest, it could be understood as, as death when your days are done. You shall rise and stand in your allotted place. In other words, you'll receive your allotted inheritance. If you need additional reference, by the way, go read Job 3. Finally, I believe it's important to know that we have an assignment here on earth. Christopher Wright points out that the twice repeated phrase to Daniel, go your way, that's not a brusque dismissal, but it's a simple assurance that Daniel can go back to his work, back to his prayers, back to whatever his life was about. And in doing so, he would be numbered with the wise who are called to shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness. In other words... They're to let their light so shine before men that they may see their good works and glorify their Father who is in heaven. Words sound familiar? The words of Jesus. It means by word and deed. And in verse 10, Daniel's reminded that many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined. If you want a theological term, that's a description of sanctification. The job we have to do. Yeah, there are things we have to do to make sure that we are going to be saved. It's a gift, but there are responsibilities. Revelation 7, 9 and following. After this I looked and behold a great number that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then one of the elders, verse 13, addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where they come? John says, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones that are coming out of the great tribulation. This is when John wrote Revelation. He's not talking about a tribulation in the future. 
These are those that have already come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the martyrs, the ones who have given their lives, who have already died and already received their reward. If we learn nothing during the study of Daniel, I pray we've learned that our calling, regardless of how bad things might become, is to live boldly witnessing to the love and proclaiming the good news that salvation is found only in giving our lives faithfully and loyalty to the King, to, to King Jesus. Which leads me to my challenge. You see, rather than being hyped up about trying to predict the end of time, without going out and wasting a bunch of money on books that have been written about how the flame that appear in Revelation are the flamethrowers of World War II or uh, descriptions of helicopter. Uh, what? It's so much junk. We need to just hear the words of Jesus Himself who said, I don't know when it'll be. But it'll be like a thief in the night. Daniel lived to be an old man because he believed, and I think this is the encouragement we need to hear, he believed that our earthly lives are preparation for the future. And so he lived faithfully, loyally, close to the 90 years of age. And he did that in spite of a lion's den. But he understood that our earthly lives are predominantly just preparation, but, listen to me, we're not to be so focused on the future. Don't worry about tomorrow, the Bible says, because tomorrow will have what? Enough problems of its own. Deal with what you're facing today and each day. Somebody once said, we can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Yes, God wants us to live blessed and abundant lives right here on earth. Because He wants us to be prepared to live with others worshiping God in the new heaven and the new earth. I have people talk to me all the time about their relatives that have gone to heaven and I, I knew the lives that they lived on earth. And I say, why do you think they'd want to be in heaven? I, I tend to be happy and rude sometimes. Why do you think they'd want to be in heaven? They didn't want to have anything to do with other Christians and worshiping and singing praises to God while they were here on earth. Why would they want to do that for eternity? Well, we're not very logical sometimes when we talk about life after death, except for the fact that every one of us would like a piece of fire insurance. I think all of Daniel can be summed up in a psalm, some verses in a psalm, and that's what I want to close with. We're going to sing a couple of verses of a, of a commitment and an invitation hymn. Cindy, on the last verse, quit playing at the end of the verse before you, we can sing the chorus a cappella because uh, Cindy wants to come forward and do something real quick. But Psalm 
68. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Are we living in a blessed nation? The people whom He has chosen as His inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love, that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in You. Let's pray.